0: So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray one more time before we get into this. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for the clarity uh, that scripture brings about. All amazing little details of of who you are and the intentionality of your actions. God, I pray that this message and this passage uh, would be impactful, would reach those that you are seeking to save. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I spoke with my friends, a couple of my friends and uh, family, I told them I was doing this passage and they kind of chuckled because knowing me a little bit personally, especially way back in the old days of my life, uh, me getting the passage passage of Jesus freaking out and going off on people kind of lined up with like my personality. They're like, of course you have that passage to preach on. Um, I was having a conversation with a staff member here a couple months ago, and they are like, how many fights were you in as a kid? And I was like, uh, before the age of 18, I think at least like 35. And he was like, <gasps> I'm like, what, was that a lot? Like, <laughs> I mean, my dad, was, my dad was just the kind of guy that was like, look, don't start the fights, but make sure you finish them. And so, you know, I had some anger issues going on as well. Mixed in with, like, that permission from my father to be like, look, if the school principal is mad at you, but you didn't start the fight, guess what? I'll probably take you for ice cream. So I would just, like, I'm just sitting there. I'd be like, come on, bro. Just, just touch me. Just poke me. Just give me a reason. And so some of you are probably thinking, like, should this guy be around students and children? <laughs> no worries. Like, I've only had, like, one altercation in the last 10 years. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> and so really, like when it comes to this passage, this picture of Jesus, it's, it's one of these things where we're like, what's going on here? Is this passage really like a justification of anger? Is it something that my fellow Enneagram eights, us challengers, see Jesus and we're like, that's my Jesus. The guy is not afraid to get into it. The guy is not afraid to mix things up. Like, is this here to show us sometimes it's okay to be angry and sin not? Right? Is this a template for how to do that? Or is something else taking place? You know, I know when I go to prayer and when I think about my Savior, I certainly hope that the angry Jesus getting ready to whip people in this courtyard here is not the Jesus listening to my prayers. You know, This is not the one that I'm like, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. That's not what that feels like here. It feels like a different guy. And so, whenever I'm reading scripture, it seems like I can't reconcile some different elements of who God is that's shown in different nature and character, and I can't make sense of a passage. Uh, I'll pull back the curtain a little bit on what goes into sermon prep. I always ask investigative questions. The questions are, who, what, where, when, how, and why. And so today, to really best understand this passage, um, I'm going to kind of take you through my general process of trying to understand something that is not quite making sense to me. So today, we're actually going to go through uh, when, how, what, and the who and the why. These are the questions that we're going to answer this morning. First, we're going to look at when this took place. Because this story follows directly after the wedding where Jesus turned water into wine. And so if we're looking at this story, we're saying, okay, Jesus turns water into wine. Next thing he does is, like, go off on people real angry. So is this kind of like a cautionary tale of, like, Uh, hide the booze from Jesus because he's an angry drunk, right? Because like when we read the story, it's like, okay, Jesus turns water to wine. Next thing you know, he's whipping people in the temple, right? But when you read the other accounts of the Gospels, what you see is this cleansing of the temple taking place much later in the account of Jesus' life. In fact, it's towards the very end of his life, as he enters Jerusalem, and it kicks off Passion Week. But for some reason here in John, we see this story take place like right in the beginning, right up front. Right from the get-go. Why is this? Well, some people have questioned and postured, well, maybe Jesus cleansed the temple twice. Maybe this event took place two times. If we're reading John chronologically, as a certain series of events, day one, day two, day three, this happened, this happened, then this happened, we will come to some, some frustrating and confusing conclusions about what's going on here in the writers of the Gospels, uh, missing some things. You know, verse 13 kind of says, it says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, coming right off of the miracle at the wedding. But really what's taking place is John is using a different form of writing to get across his point in the rest of the book. We're used to reading chronologically. John is telling this story known as chirologically. Chirologically. What is a chirological interpretation? Chirological interpretation reckons time, not in terms of our familiar chronological ordering, but in terms of quality of purpose, in which an event is said to occur at just the right time. So, John is trying to show us that Jesus' life was the temple made flesh in the person of Jesus and wants us to see the rest of this book of John through this lens. He first indicates this in John 1, verse 14, when it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word for dwelt is eskinoson. And it means to set up, tent, or to tabernacle among. The Old Testament had uh, the temple set up. And the temple was a place where you could come, make a sacrifice for purification for your sins. And you'd be good for a certain period of time, and then you'd have to come back, make a sacrifice of an animal, purification of your sins. But the temple was also known as the place where God's presence and glory met earth. It was the intersectionality of heaven and earth there in the temple. So John tells us in 1 verse 14 that in fact in Jesus, Jesus tabernacled among us. In the person of Jesus, that heaven and earth has met. In the person of Jesus and his life and sacrifice, the sacrifice and temple has been made manifest in him. John 1.14 kind of resembles what has been spoken in the Old Testament, Malachi 3.1, which says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So John has rearranged the order of events of Jesus' life in the story and placed it at the beginning of his book to invite us to take the wide lens view of Jesus' work. In this instance, he is inviting us to read the rest of the book, understanding that Jesus' is replacing the temple as the place where God's glory met the earth by being the embodiment of God on earth while replacing the temple sacrifices and customs. So just to be clear, there's not two different temple cleansings that Jesus takes place in. John is wanting us to see this story at the beginning and filter through everything else that Jesus does in the rest of the book through this lens that Jesus is here to the embodiment of God and the replacement of the temple sacrifices and customs. Next we answer the question of how. How did Jesus go about this dramatic cleansing of the temple? And the imagery is quite vivid, isn't it? We see in verse 14 it says, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there making a whip of cords. So I'm just going to pause right here. Making a whip of cords. Jesus' response and reaction to what he saw wasn't some like fly off the handle, see something, he sees red, and he just goes off. says so Jesus walks in, he sees what's taking place, and he takes the time to make a whip. Jesus is not going off, As a hothead, he's not going off in an outburst of anger. Jesus is being very intentional in his actions in response to what he's seen. Matter of fact, it's described like this in in Barnes' Notes of of the Bible. It says, uh, Jesus made a scourge, a whip of small cords. The original word implies that these cords were made of twisted rushes or reeds, which are ancient material for making ropes. So in other words, to to kind of synthesize it and figure out what is he doing, how is he going about this, Jesus seemed to have stopped in the courtyard in the midst of all the noise and chaos of the crowds, people looking to change money and purchase sacrifices. He's surrounded by the noise of the cattle and the sheep, and he painstakingly makes a scourge, a whip from materials that were at hand, the rushes that formed animal beds, and ropes to tether them. Goes on to say, with this whip, he drives them out along with the sheep and the oxen. I mean, this is not some kind of like, oh, Jesus got angry and freaked out, so like, I can do it too as long as I'm justified. I mean, this is different. This is Jesus taking in what's happening and purposefully planning his reaction and his judgment of that place. Verse 15 says, he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. I mean, I kind of picture Jesus here, like, picking up the coins and just staring everybody in the eyes as he dumped it out on the ground. Like, I mean, he goes from, like, taking a whip, knocking people out, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here, getting the animals out, and then he like kind of pauses, goes over the money, is like just pours it out in front of him. You want it that bad? Pick it up later when I leave. I mean, Jesus is quite intense here. Jesus is a very intimidating figure in this moment. His anger is unintentional, and his actions were thought out. But we have to ask, really, what is the cause of Jesus to react this way in this moment? Like, what is at the core of him behaving this way? In a parallel account, remember, the story comes up in other places in the Gospels. In Mark 11, it says that Jesus states, when he's teaching them, he says, it is, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Here, when Jesus says, is it not written, he is quoting Isaiah 56.7 that says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. See, the setup here in the courtyard was actually outside of the main temple area. The setup in the courtyard was outside the main temple area and it was a place of welcome and a house of prayer and worship for the Gentile, for those who were not accustomed to standard Jewish practice, those who were considered outside of God's chosen people. So Jesus arrives on the scene and what does he see? He sees a lot of business taking place where worship is supposed to be taking place we get some more context of what Jesus is thinking here from Isaiah 56, when in verse 4 it says this, it says, For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. So first off, we see people who have no lineage and have no future line, no name, no family, a repute being called into this relationship with God, giving them a house and walls and a name. In verse 6, we see the foreigners joining themselves. It says, and the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister him, to love the name of the Lord, are now coming in. Isaiah 56.8 says, Even beyond the foreigners, the outcasts will be gathered to his people. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him beside those already gathered. I mean, the heart behind what, what set Jesus off was this place that was supposed to be for the nameless that was supposed to be for the foreigner, that was supposed to be for the outcast to come and encounter and know the one true living God, had become something entirely different. Jesus approached the temple pulsing with buying and selling. The court of the Gentiles, a place designed all along for foreigners to congregate, for the nations to seek the Lord, was overrun with opportunists trying to turn a profit. And worse yet, the Jewish leaders had let this happen and enabled it. What has set Jesus off? The exclusionary practice of what was supposed to be the house of God and the people of God. A lot of people will say this passage is, is about a condemnation of uh, the house of God taking up like any kind of money or, or trying to be any profit. That's not what's really going on here. I mean, a lot of people are like, well, churches should never take up offerings. If Jesus came to church and saw you take up an offering, he'd flip over to the money changers table, uh, Ernie Evangelista would be in trouble. He'd have a whip on him. That's not really what's going on. It's the emphasis of profit at the exclusion of welcoming in the outsider to worship God. And lastly, we come to the who and the why. Verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What they're really asking is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to come to this place and cast judgment on it? I mean, yeah, maybe like some things were a little bit off. But the Jewish leaders, the temple leaders set the rules. They set the standard. And if anybody was going to challenge that, they better supersede them in authority. Who are you? What sign do you have to show us that you can do this and cast judgment on this place? Who do you think you are? And Jesus responds with a foreshadowing of his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Who do you think you are? Jesus essentially says, I'm the one. I'm the one. I am the temple. My body will be destroyed as the ultimate sacrifice. But the victory of God will be declared when I'm raised up three days later. I mean, nobody else can say that. The Jews had been looking for a Messiah. They'd been looking for the one to come and change things. They'd been looking for the one to cast judgment, but not on their place of worship, but on the worldwide. And when Jesus comes and casts judgment, and he answers them, I'm not just... The Messiah, I'm the one replacing the temple. I am the one who through being destroyed will replace all the customary purchasing and sacrificing in this process over and over and over again of having sins cleansed. I mean, I'm so thankful for this I mean, we don't have to make a trip back to Jerusalem every single year to be cleansed of our sins. We just have to take Jesus at his word for, who are you? I mean, no other Messiah could say, I'm going to be raised up. No other Messiah could declare that his works would be justified by God through defeating death. Prior to this time and even sometime after, a lot had come and said that they were the one. They were going to save Israel. They were going to make things right. They were going to cast judgment. All those guys are still in the ground. None of them are the one. And Jesus' sacrifice, his body being destroyed, would matter none unless he was raised up three days later. We see this spelled out later on in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 14. It says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool For his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Question is, who is Jesus? He's the one. Who is Jesus? He is the one. He is the one who through his destroyed body we have been made clean. And notice, it doesn't say we've been made cleansed, whereas we have to come back. Over and over and get clean again and again and again. I mean, who's washed their hands one time this year and that's it? Are your hands clean? No, your hands are cleansed. You're going to have to come back and do it again. Now it says Jesus has made us clean. And clean once and for all. Who is Jesus? He is the one who has taken the justice of God and because of his victory is raised up to bring justice to his enemies. Jesus is the one who not only has taken away our sin, who not only has taken away the judgment that was coming to us from God upon himself, but he's the one who was justified in all that he said and all that he did by his resurrection. And because he was resurrected, he's got some more work to do. He's going to place every enemy under his feet. Who is Jesus? He is the one who has perfected us for all time. And there is nobody like Jesus. What is this passage about? And this passage is here to show us there is nobody like Jesus. There is no sacrifice left to be made. There is no animosity between you and God. There is no judgment resting on you. There is no one else to make things right. This passage is here to show us the uniqueness, the amazing nature of our Savior. It's to show us he is the one who has replaced the temple. He is the one who has replaced, sacrificing over and over and over again to be cleansed. He is the one. I mean, there's no cute little Sunday school lesson here to be like, oh, well, now you can can scream at people when you're mad. That's not it. The bigger view is for us to see Jesus and see Him for who He is, and respond to that. And lastly, the question is, why? But why did this take place? It's because Jesus is passionate, passionate about those He came to save. Jesus is passionate about you. When Jesus cleansed the temple in the outer courtyard to the outcast, to the eunuch, to the foreigner, Jesus was doing it because he was passionate in his love for you. I mean, all the stories of Jesus came to seek and save the lost, leaving the 99 for the one, searching up and down the house. The prodigal son returning, welcoming him back. Those stories make sense in light of understanding Jesus cast judgment on any restriction that would keep his people away from him. And this story is an exemplification of God's care, his passion, and his love for you and the uniqueness of Jesus being the only one to save. We're going to conclude this sermon. And really, there's, there's always kind of an invitation for, for prayer if you have need, if you have personal issues going on in your life. But ultimately, I, I believe that this sermon is, is and this passage is meant for two things. The first is if you have not recognized Jesus as the one and all that implies, then today is the day to do that. To recognize Jesus as the only one who can save, the only one that you can place your faith in, the only one that you can trust to clean you once and for all, to perfect you. To remove your past and give you a future today is the day to recognize if you have not and if you have, if you say I believe I place my faith in Jesus and I love him because he loved me first and he showed it through these acts, he showed it through these things which eventually got him killed and his body destroyed as it's put here and we react with love and worship and devotion. That temple that Jesus was passionate about to be cleansed and opened up to the foreigner, man, that's the place where we step in because he made room. And we worship and we love this Jesus, this unique Savior with all that we have, with all that we got. That's what we walk into